Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of You Too Can Book Review. I'm your host, Thaddeus Bradley, and today we'll be opening up The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Dr. van der Kolk wrote The Body Keeps the Score in 2014, and the book is a reflection on his studies in the fields of neurobiology and trauma since the 1970s. I got the opportunity to sit down with a dear friend of mine, Kirsten Musgrave, to explore the impacts of The Body Keeps the Score, not only on our personal lives as we read through the book, but specifically chatting with Kirsten about how the book has affected and plays into the work that she and others do at the nonprofit she works at called First Aid Arts. So without further ado, here's my interview with Kirsten Musgrave as we explore The Body Keeps the Score. So much of this, of what he has studied in his lifetime, and so much of the development of of neuroscience and studying the mind, brain, and body has happened in the last century. Yeah. yeah. And what that means for society, like I was thinking about the first time they started studying um, they started studying incest and sexual yeah. abuse in a like a systematic way yeah. related to this was in the 1980s yeah. which means that's like my parents yeah. were our age in the 80s yeah so and they had just started touching on the study yeah right and so what does that mean for our parents generation and like the abuse and mm-hmm. history that has happened to them and then beyond that like our well, grandparents yeah that alone was crazy. I mean, that part, he starts it out with reading from that book that's like the standard of the day saying that incest prepares people for like l- l- the rest of their life. Like saying it was a good thing. This is like the 1970s. This right. is this is like that my mom was like, this isn't 2000 years ago, you know, absolutely crazy. Right. It was, it was, Yeah. It also made me think, what is the stuff right now that we, that they're just getting to? Right. That for us is like, no, that's just how it is. Right. That we just don't even know. It's just like hidden. Which we'll figure out and our kids will tell us, hopefully. <laughs> tell us all the ways we messed up. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this book was so heavy it's kind of hard to be like out in pub i really like being out in public with books i'm reading and just openly reading because it stirs conversation often uh it's like a it's like a beacon (laughs) but right uh, but this book is like i don't want to really talk with anyone in the moment about it yes i'm like (laughs) because you're processing it in your own body as you're learning because you're learning about yourself yes because you're learning oh, this is how the brain works, this is how the body works, this is how the mind, and they all are integrating, and and then you're applying it to all of your experiences yes. of childhood and current situations and relationships and realizing, like, ab- abuse happens in a relationship and that's yeah. physical, emotional, mental, like, that happens all in relationship. And... And trauma happens in relationship. And so you're just like, it's like constantly processing those things. But then also knowing that healing happens in healthy relationship and mm-hmm. with even the people that have traumatized you. Yeah. And you, you can reform that because we have neuroplasticity in our brains. And so there's so, there's yeah. so much potential there, but it is so heavy yeah. To just talk about when you're figuring it out for yourself and your own experiences for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it was with, well, this, the main sentence that hit me, page two of the introduction. I'm just sitting there. I was actually at Mabel reading and it, 
he gets to the end of this paragraph about where they're at with the new research and he says um, they also help us understand why traumatized people so often keep repeating the same problems and have such trouble learning from experience which i feel like sums up my entire life up to 25 but he says and then he says we now know that their behaviors are not the result of moral failings or signs of lack of willpower or bad character they are caused by actual changes in the brain and i was sitting there and it was just like it was both like a, a weight just got dropped on me but also like my eyes were completely opened because that's actually what I believe about myself. Like I believe my trouble learning from experience and repeating the same behavior is the result of moral failings like sin or signs of lack of willpower or just a bad character. And he's right. like, no, it's your brain. It's brain damage. Right. And it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm a little freer. Yeah, absolutely. But I was like, I'm about to start crying openly in this coffee shop. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited. I know. It is. And it's so, I hate it. Oh my gosh. It's so powerful. But that in itself, it's like we learn how to operate and how to function in the environment yeah. that we're raised yes. in. And yeah. so everything that we learn, it's like instinct and reactive and your your instincts and your survival survival mode like your brain and your body are all functioning together to to help you survive and get through things and process things yeah and so i think as children we're we're open to everything super creative imaginative yeah you know innocent in so many ways and then there are certain things that happen in our lives that challenge us and challenge our creativity, challenge our vibrancy, challenge our voice, because we have to we have to function in society. So we have to learn the rules of society. Yeah. But sometimes that's like smaller cultures that we raised in or relationships that we're in with our parents or caregivers or whatever and those can be really really challenging things that shut down those yeah. most tender like parts of our child yeah. selves and then what I've started to realize in, in reading this book and then even going through what do we do about all of this mm -hmm. trauma mm -hmm. and how do we reshape our brains again it's like our responsibility as adults is to go back and recognize, pay mind to it, and be present with that child mm -hmm. that is in us and those imaginative, fun, explorative parts of ourselves that are just genuinely like happy to be here and happy to explore and like experience everything very sensorially yeah. and learn as much as we can we have to revisit that child to help us become grounded again because yeah. I think what all of that training does like all of that socialization does it's especially in western society we start to cut our brains off from our bodies yeah and then and then we are unable to it's it's like we become disintegrated yeah we which are. just that word it's like disintegration like think about that it's like a piece of paper falling apart and in our bodies if we have disintegrated yeah then we're not we're falling apart at the seams we're not a functional piece of paper anymore mm. so reintegrating our brain and body and being present and learning how to breathe and pay attention to what we're experiencing in a moment is it's like the thing that I'm now finding myself fighting for mm. in my day-to-day mm. -day life in my adulthood mm. that's great that I haven't even realized I was missing yeah until re reading this book yeah yeah it's crazy how much gets brought up to the surface 
I was like, oh, that explains the like never ending tension I have in my shoulders. Yeah. Like it's because I'm in like, I'm in survival mode, like because that's how I had to be, you know, and and my body just thinks that's the new normal. Right. You know, it's like when you have a, it's like when you do an elimination diet to like figure out something that's wrong with you, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, my stomach hurts way less, or something, you know, has really changed, but my body just thought that was completely normal. Right. And so that was just, it wasn't, there was no flashing of like, hey, something's wrong. Hey, you're living like at 20% capacity. Because that's just how it's always been. You've just always been living at 20%. Right. Because <laughs> you're surviving. <laughs> yeah. That's <sighs> so heavy. But, okay, so to zoom out uh, and pull back a little bit, though. So how were you, how did you first hear about Body Keeps the Score? Or how were who or what introduced you to it? Um, yeah, I'm curious where that started. The team I work with at First State Arts, um, they recommend it to anybody that's kind of interested in in doing a deeper dive into the why behind the what at First State Arts, mm. because it has it holds so much of the research that yeah. drives um, our work in using creativity in the arts to help people who are working with trauma survivors, both for self-care and in facilitating um, those survivors' yeah. resilience, I guess, yeah. and reintegration after they've experienced something traumatic. So. Yeah. Um, it was my team that introduced me to the body keeps the score cool. and we recommend it to anybody that's interested in first aid arts and learning more, reading more. So it's, we have a reading list that yeah. we recommend to people. And this is one of the books on that reading list. And I was like, I should probably finally read this because yeah. I recommend it to people. <laughs> to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so I wonder if, I wonder if Curtis, like, I wonder where he found it or if he was the one who. It's actually Ruth and Matt. Ruth and Matt are both um, licensed mental health professionals. Mm. So they have the more intense, they've been through their master's Mm. programs and they've got um, that background. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm making the assumption that this is probably like required reading in any of those programs. I kind of hope so. Because yeah. isn't that how Austin got a hold of it too? Is yeah. is through, through those same school. fields? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, that makes. That My makes sister's sense. also read it, so I borrowed her copy, and I mean she's been on the front lines of trauma, so she's like constantly looking for research and resources to help her with awesome. the work that she's doing. Wow. Do you take do you take notes in the book or do you? Uh, yeah. This yeah. is my yeah. notebook. I've literally taken notes on every chapter and like written down page That's numbers. <laughs> uh, so what, um, as far as at First Aid Arts, do you think there's parts of this book that have been directly applied, like since you've read it, or I guess since maybe before you've read it, but are there any parts directly from the book that you feel like have been applied to what you guys are up to at First Aid Arts? Totally. Um, and it's, it's kind of like the greater body of research behind the book that yeah. I know Ruth and Matt and the, and the group of advisors that develop our programs, like they're all in that research and yeah. constantly, yeah. um, bringing that into what we're doing and comparing it to what we're learning and the, like the measures and evaluations that we gather from the people that we train. But there's a lot, I've been through our first aid arts training myself and in reading this book I started connecting the dots like mm. of course our the people that design our program know what all the dots are but I didn't know that as just kind of a a, a bystander yeah. it's just a, yeah. just no, an yeah. average person <laughs> um, yeah. But going through the training and then reading the book, I started seeing in the activities that we learn and and in the ways that we interact, there's so much 
um, embedded in healthy like attachment mirroring like synchronicity using um, musicality using different types of art to start at a low risk space and move to a more um, kind of in an arc like you challenge yourself bit by bit a little bit more Hmm. but there's so much around like I mean the objectives of our programs are interpersonal skills emotion regulation and um, self-awareness and so even in the last chapter of this book that I just read like that's kind of the three things that we come back to that you lose when you experience trauma or Mm. that go offline when Mm. you experience something traumatic and if you stay in that fight flight freeze mode that survival mode then those things have a hard time coming back online so that's the whole objective of our programs and I see that throughout like throughout this book like why they go offline in the first place why your critical thinking center goes offline in the first place and you lose access to that healthy emotion regulation, interpersonal skills, mm-hmm. and self-awareness. And then how do we get those things back online and mm-hmm. reconnect your survival brain, emotion brain, and and thinking brain? Mm-hmm. So That's great. That's a hopeful visual, like getting systems back online. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> it is, like, you see kind of, the way he talks about it it's almost like a clogging or like a backup Mm. of like what's going on in your brain it's like your wires if they're your electrical circuits they can get clogged Mm. or your patterns get out of sync and your brain waves the last chapter about neurofeedback actually shows like how your brain waves get out of sync and are unable to organize and then you feel lost or you actually get lost or you like dissociate you can't remember things you don't know how you got places like and you're they can see like your brain waves are actually just like out of sync and you want them to be um all in line it's like a middle school band on the first day of eighth grade it's like horrible (laughs) And then by the end of the year, you've, like, trained everybody so that you can actually play at a concert. Huh. Wow. That's so great. That is awesome. Hmm. What was the, uh, oh, so as far as, um, so the Instagram live you did with reading the book, what was the, was there a response to that or what was the response to that? I thought that was super interesting. Yeah, we did get a response. Yeah. <laughs> a response. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if I can classify it as good or great or I don't know how to classify it yet because yeah. it's the first time that we've ever done yeah. that. But we did get a lot of of good feedback um, from the people that follow us and from our community and people reached out to me even outside of social media Mm. and Instagram and said, oh, I have loved watching that. Mm. Or um, I picked up this book. You picked up the book, I think, after... Yeah, yeah, after a conversation. Yeah. With you in Austin. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, my cousins in Nebraska reached out to me and were like, this is such a great book. I'm so glad you're doing Mm. this. I was like, Mm. I I don't talk to them very regularly. I love them, but I don't. You know, so it started creating some some conversations. Um, and then I wouldn't say that the live element was very successful. I don't sure. think we have a big enough following. Yeah, that's fine. That's not necessarily the goal. Yeah, but the people that said anything mm-hmm. had really positive things to say hmm. and, and really enjoyed enjoyed it as far as I could tell and so hmm. that was that was cool and even if you know one person reads that book yeah I feel like that's a huge yeah impact it's that's like a big enough impact for me because it is so 
powerful and then it's such a conversation starter and you Absolutely. start to reframe the way that you operate <laughs> i've started to reframe the way that i operate oh 100 percent, yeah because of just what i've learned about hmm. myself and the world and other people and how i approach people even is so different so yeah i'd say success success absolutely <laughs> yeah i agree with the even if one person it's funny i think because it this book just came onto my radar i'm like oh this is gaining more attention because it's just in my universe it's gaining more attention i guess mm-hmm. but it is interesting and this goes back to kind of what we were discussing about like prescription drugs and like what the mainstream culture believes or or what our um yeah culturally what we believe about how to deal with ptsd with uh people struggling from mental disorders there's so much that is like out of sync in our cultural answer to that it's like give people drugs and ostracize people we think are weird and this book is so hopeful for like no there's there are real tangible solutions to everything that is going wrong as far as mental health in our society it's crazy mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so the drug revolution he talks yeah. about started what what year the sure. 80s maybe but before that i thought it was so fascinating like hospitals had community spaces yeah and basketball courts and swimming pools yeah. where patients and doctors would take a break together and just play basketball like these yeah. very community oriented like play oriented interpersonal yeah activities and those spaces in hospitals were actually the spaces that were turned into laboratories for pharmaceuticals yeah and it was amazing to see the changes in the development that could and the 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 progress that came from um the drug revolution the pharmaceutical revolution because there actually was um so so much progress i guess in in people's ability to like sit Hmm. through a session with someone Hmm. or like calm them down like anxiety like um the the chemical answer was actually allowing people to start working through some of the things that they weren't able to work through before or talk about some of the things that they weren't able to talk about before because it was actually giving them a um a different like chemical balance in their brain yeah um and progress was seen but then it was kind of taken to the extreme and um and became like the sexiest science yeah or part of i'm not i'm not going to speak very eloquently to this because i'm not a doctor so that's it's part of me but fine. no doctors are listening to this podcast so <laughs> so you're someday. safe yeah someday I... you're, you're, you're safe <laughs> but the <laughs> like it became this like sexy field of study yeah so everybody in med school was like yeah. i want to become i want to know the chemistry i want to know how we can mani- manipulate our yeah. biology through chemistry because that's amazing and it is but then it overshadowed the root of the problem mm-hmm. and so it was giving us like oh well you're imbalanced in this way put this like balance it out with chemistry but then we weren't seeing any like sustained transformation Hmm. because it wasn't about just your chemical imbalance it was about experiences that are stuck in our bodies and memories and and no outlet for those experiences yeah because the drugs often just suppress it Mm -hmm. they don't yeah they don't let it give it room to breathe yeah which is what playing basketball or a community pool you know and it's not that i don't think you know there is a place for the pharmaceutical industry and for chemical balancing but it can't be the only thing and right yeah. now that's what it is you have a problem well yeah here's, here's a prescription and there's okay so there's 
when he talks about the research they did with kids, it's also this, like, gross social justice issue. Mm-hmm. Gross and, like, expansive is yeah. what I mean. Yeah. So, I want to find it. But yeah. basically, under the age of five, I think it was, there's, it's in part four. children this is where we cut to sponsorship you yeah know. cut to sponsorship brought to you by he talks about um imprint of trauma hidden epidemic oh developmental trauma the hidden hmm. epidemic hmm. where child abuse hmm. is a greater cause of it's like our most expensive yeah cost to society basically because it makes people less productive obviously oh i remember people seeing that people are yeah. more incarcerated like the incarceration rate or chances that you'll be incarcerated are higher yeah so I just want to read the passage that it is. Yeah, but he's talking do. about like child abuse as a an epidemic that has plagued our country and then creates all of these other illnesses that are okay. physical manifestations of the developmental trauma that you experienced as a child, hmm. which then inhibits your ability to function as a hmm. productive citizen in our hmm. society. And so I mean, we could boil it down to economics yeah. if you have to put a price tag on everything, which yeah. we do. Which a lot of people, yeah, do need a price tag. I'm just gonna read this whole yeah, passage. Please. <laughs> the first time I heard Robert and uh, Anda, okay. The first time I heard Robert Anda present the results of the ACE study, he could not hold back his tears. In his career at the CDC, he had previously worked in several major risk areas, including tobacco research and cardiovascular health. But when the ACE study data started to appear on his computer screen, he realized that they had stumbled upon the gravest and most costly public health issue in the United States, child abuse. He had calculated that its overall costs exceeded those of cancer or heart disease, and that eradicating child abuse in America would reduce the overall rate of depression by more than half, alcoholism by two-thirds, and suicide, IV drug use, and domestic violence by three-quarters. Mm-hmm. Three-quarters. Mm-hmm. Reducing yeah. suicide, IV drug use, and domestic violence by three-quarters. Yeah. That's 75%. That's nuts. It would also have a dramatic effect on workplace performance and vastly decrease the need for incarceration. Mm. When the Surgeon General's report on smoking and health was published in 1964, it unleashed a decades-long legal and medical campaign that has changed daily life and long-term health prospects for millions. The number of American smokers fell from 42% of adults in 1965 to 19% in 2010, and it is estimated that nearly 800,000 deaths from lung cancer were prevented between 1975 Mm. and 2000. The ACE study, however, has had no such effect. Follow-up studies and papers are still appearing around the world, but the day-to-day reality of children like Marilyn and the children in outpatient clinics and residential treatment centers around the country remains virtually the same. Only now they receive high doses of psychotropic agents, which makes them more tractable, but which also impairs their ability to feel pleasure and curiosity to grow and develop emotionally and intellectually and to become contributing members of society. That's crazy. So if it's a public health problem, he's he's asking why can't we treat it like we treated cigarettes or tobacco consumption? And I think it's because it is so interpersonal mm-hmm. and we are so afraid of going onto the front lines of domestic violence, of like how we treat each other. It's nobody else's business. And it's kind of almost a reflection of like what 
it's a, it's like a reflection almost of how we live in very yeah. individual absolutely suburban environments where we're kind of disconnected we don't necessarily know our neighbors some people do this isn't i'm not speaking for every community and every neighborhood in the united states but there's we build physical walls and they're very reflective of how we operate as a community because we Mm -hmm. hide behind them Mm -hmm. and we don't bring abuse or mistreatment or the pain out into the open and talk about it like Mm -hmm. if there's distress or domestic violence between a couple at home are they telling their best friends about it Mm -hmm. are they talking about it with their community is anyone giving them support and helping them find solutions so that they can Mm -hmm. create new patterns and ways of engagement and ways of healthy conflict like are we talking about those things Mm. probably not are there resources for those things yes but like it's not by any means like a government mandate like Mm. fighting tobacco is because it's tobacco is a product right that we can control yeah but relationships yeah relationships have become a product in the sex industry which is a whole other rabbit trail <laughs> a to whole go down. can of worms yeah no it's yeah yeah it's crazy but there is I mean yeah there's hope for this intense amount of child abuse in that like if you have experienced developmental trauma we have neuroplasticity in our brains and we can rewire our brains Mm -hmm. and find a sense of self and build a sense of self and a sense of agency and some people will have to work a lot harder than others to do so but it's never over for you. Like mm. we all have neuroplasticity and the ability to rewire our brains mm. and create new healthy relationships. And he says one of the most effective ways to rewire our brains is through healthy community, healthy relationship. Because if abuse and neglect and trauma happens interpersonally, then healing and love happens interpersonally. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was mostly impressed by, and I'm excited to finish. I'm only like halfway through, a little, yeah, I think a little over halfway through. I was impressed by, I mean, and I think I'm saying his name right, Bessel, which yeah. is a great first name, but like he's been in this field and industry for, you know, since the dawn of time, but he remains so hopeful for our ability to to grow and and that we have the tools right in front of us to be able to change so he you know he's not disillusioned to what the problem is the problem is massive i mean that paragraph you just read you know nobody the the government isn't going to be motivated to do anything you know they're not going to be but we as individuals do have the tools to start making change and bringing change and allowing change within ourselves by extension our communities and by extension you know yeah everywhere but i think something really powerful about the data and the fact is when you can start tying it to dollar amounts Mm -hmm. which they did they quantified it yeah then why not yeah let that be a motivator i was a um I was at lunch at Google with hmm. a friend yesterday that had me come visit and he gave me a tour of everything. And I noticed they don't have sugar in any of their, hmm. they don't really have dessert options. And my friend was like, yeah, that's because they actually researched, they like tracked productivity and took away sugar and just, and paid attention to like what that did to their employees and changed the way, like changed the food that they feed them. And it made productivity go up when they took sugar away. Hmm. So it was this very 
tangible, very physical yeah, very change grounded. that they tied to productivity, hmm. which is dollar amounts for a company, right? Mm-hmm. And so in the same way, it's like if our people are more mentally hmm. and emotionally and physically healthy, hmm. our businesses do better, which means our economy does better, hmm. right? And so even if like if the government can't be persuaded, could yeah. big corporations like Google and Facebook and yeah. these monster tech industries, could they be motivated to implement yeah. things in the way that they... Yeah, and they are. They are starting to, they have to be affected by, I mean, what was Facebook last year said, you know, that they wanted that they had shifted their whole mission statement from it was away from, you know, getting everybody online and onto their platform. And now it was to facilitating community. That's what they want their new focus to be or Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. But recently this study came out that said people are unhappy using Instagram. Like the more you're on Instagram, the unhappier you get. And so Instagram started this team to explore why how to how to facilitate people being happier when using the app so not to say instagram's the solution but to say companies are starting to recognize yeah directly affected by and understand yeah that something's missing and they they are motivated by so whatever motivation it is whether it's that high of a level where we can get companies to respond or if it's at a personal level, you know, for me, that's what it was reading this. Yeah. I went from not taking ownership to some areas of my life because I just figured that's just how I am. That passage I was reading, you know, this is just right. my lack of character. And reading this book, it forced me, but also more importantly, allowed me to take responsibility and say, no, this is due to this some things have affected my brain and i have the tools now in front of me to start to take responsibility for that and change yeah you know and for me it won't be maybe as hard of a road as it is for many many people but it's unbelievably hopeful yeah yeah and i think what's so amazing about it is there's very like tangible things that we can do it, because yeah. it's about your body, right? Yeah. It's like the body keeps the score is the title. Yeah. And your body and brain are connected to your mind. Like it's all connected. And so we can actually like physically influence the way that our brain functions and the way that our thoughts operate in our mind. And so our body what? is physical. It's sensorial. So it, it reacts to all of those things. So it's it's not conceptual right mm-hmm. like these solutions aren't conceptual it's like actual like yeah the more grounded that we can be the better yeah and so and like interpersonally it's like mirroring each other mm-hmm. having positive mirroring experiences like mm-hmm. this is how we operate as babies we need our parents to mirror us and like tell kind of give us a gauge through facial expressions and through touch and through everything is sensorial. We don't have any language yet. Everything is sensorial. So we need healthy senses and sensorial interactions to make us feel safe and attached. And so I even think about how do we do that as adults with each other? It's really like eye contact, playing. It's all the same things as a baby needs. It's like comfort holds hugs like all those things are the same yeah like we're not exempt from those things because we're adults yeah we respond our bodies respond in the same way a baby does and so we have to mirror each other and smile at each other and make eye contact and i think we lose that because you're like oh i'm fine i'm an adult i got this Mm -hmm. i'm immune to Mm -hmm. things that babies need but we're not no. at all it's it always comes back to like the basic like yeah <laughs> good food good people like yeah and we we also need yeah we need each other you know when we need 
even something as simple as what you said is smiling at people. You know, how many times when you're walking along and you're just walking by complete strangers who you have no idea who they are, they probably live within, you know, three miles of you. And, you know, they actually are your, like, physical community. Even just starting to simply, like, smile at people, say hello. And we we aren't meant to be yeah the, the whole individualistic like that test if, if it was a test we've we failed it like that hypothesis that scenario it doesn't work we're not we are like a tribe we are yeah we do need each other right we're not meant to be these isolated people who try and do it on our own we yeah. need to admit weakness and we need to be able to be in an environment where we feel safe and can ask for help from other people and that is almost non-existent <laughs> at least that's how that's how it feels right and when we are connected to our neighbors we're more likely to take ownership of our neighborhood and yeah. look out for each other yeah and which again circles back to economic value right we take care of the land we take care of the neighborhood yeah, there's so many applications. Yeah. And it all starts with just interacting yeah. in healthy ways with one other person. Yeah. You know, it's so crazy. And then I also think about, okay, in the same way that a parent attaches with their newborn, I'm like, what does that mean for romantic relationships? Mm. Like, if if that's what it means to create healthy attachment, you're mirroring each other, you're like like mother to child, for mm-hmm. example. You're mirroring each other, there's synchronicity, there's musicality, and there's this very in-tune physical mm-hmm. um, interaction that, that creates healthy attachment, which is our understanding of love. Mm-hmm. And... So when we're trying to build trust and healthy attachment with a romantic partner, yeah. you literally, I, th- I mean, this is kind of me reading between the lines here, but it's like you're trying to create the same, you're, the same yeah. physical, emotional, and mental environment as you would be with a newborn child. If you're like trying to build a life with someone, you have to mirror them and attune to them and say I hear you I see you I honor you your experience is valid and yeah and this is my eye contact for you and my like safe touch for you and my like cradling of you which actually I don't know like yeah and how That's often what cuddling is, that... is right yeah absolutely but how often is that even done healthily you know what i mean like we're so out of touch with uh out of touch with what relational health actually looks like that's crazy hmm. so if we treat it not that we should treat our partners as babies but kind of kind of in a way <laughs> yeah the same tenderness care focus mm-hmm that totally changes it when you think of it that way. Yeah. And creating like safe spaces for food, even like gathering around a table. Mm. It's like you think about the way that you feed a baby. Mm. It's in an embrace. It's in like a loving embrace. And you're feeding this baby and mm. you're tuning to it and you're loving this baby. And so it's the same way that we like receive nourishment can be mimicked for adults not that we'll be like holding each other yeah feeding each other, <laughs> but, feeding. but kind of holding space and creating a, yeah. a space around a table that creates connection and creates that eye contact that is necessary when you're feeding your baby to like okay are you done are you okay are you do you need to spit up like what is yeah. that whereas like we hold the same space around a table for each other like how are you doing today 
are we're all like checking in we're like making eye contact and yeah. we're laughing together we're like creating together or we're mourning together whatever that is but it's yeah. like we're attuning to those the smallest little things in each other's bodies hmm. and they talk about neural wi-fi which i think is amazing it's like living with roommates yeah there are moments where i'll literally have this i'll be on the same brainwave totally. as my roommates totally like we'll we'll come out of our rooms wearing the same thing we'll react to jokes in the same way or we'll have the like same like exact response like verbatim yeah two different things and we're they talk about yeah being on the same brainwave you're actually there's like a neural wi-fi which is this like electricity between people mm -hmm. that's far beyond what we can cognitively articulate yeah because it's our limbic systems yeah and our emotional brains interacting yeah it yeah and what's crazy too is like how many other things we use that are actually we're just trying to get in into contact and into sync with other people so for example one thing i really notice is like especially and maybe i'm making a generalization here but especially among guys it it seems to be harder to acknowledge what the actual need is and so instead we talk about sports or we talk about you know and so you're they're talking about like the basketball team or like and it's really it's actually a cry for connection and sharing something on a deeper level and i in many situations where i'm sitting with a group of guys and i realize what's being said is about you know the scores of today's basketball game but what's actually going on underneath the surface is an almost desperate cry to just be attached and to be known and to be in with this with this group to be to be vulnerable but we're talking about like you know a basketball team like nobody cares but it's so scary to go to that level and be like hey i just want to be accepted and i just want to fit in you know it's it's funny though how many things stay up here and can't ever go to that level or we don't let them how would you start to change that pattern like where do we even yeah. begin i mean for me it's through sometimes awkward conversations of just trying to express that you know and not doing it very well but just or just saying the awkward thing you know hey guys i really love that we get to come and just sit all together in this living room and like in a couple months this season's going to be over and i just want you guys to know that for me it's been a really special season to get to share this this space with you you know like and everyone's like okay dude like easy chill out like someone's emotional but but no we need that we just need to be more we need to say more of that kind of stuff yeah you know? and they're probably also if it's not visible on the surface they're probably also like wow i'm so glad you said yes that. exactly i know I because that. yeah because people always come up afterwards and they're like hey you know thanks or Right. And your boldness in saying that kind of gives people permission. Or when other people say it, you know, mm -hmm. I was talking with uh, one of my roommates who, who was saying like, oh, how did he explain it? But he was saying, I'm, I'm talking to you about this, but I really just need to be listened to about anything or something. And I immediately stopped what I was doing and like set everything down and turned full focus because I was like, oh my gosh, this is a, this needs to be given attention to. And that's maybe what he's been saying the whole time, you know, and he's instead talking to me about basketball or something. Yeah. And it's like, oh, this isn't about basketball. It's about attunement. Yeah. This is about being heard and about the connection and about creating a safe space where he feels like he can be intimate and start to open up. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it reframes the whole thing. All of a sudden, it's like, I don't have time to listen to this. To, oh my gosh, like this is sacred. Right. You know? I don't know how we got to this conversation, but. <laughs> I mean, it is. It ties in. That's the physical. Neural Wi Fi. Right. And yeah. that's the physical, like, 
Yeah. It's the turning and looking at someone and saying, I see you, I hear you, and I honor you. Yeah. That's not that hard. Hmm. And that's the physical action. So it's bringing the concept of like loving someone down from like, I don't know, love is like such a vague thing. Yeah. To loving someone means like squaring your shoulders and making eye contact and saying like, I hear you mm-hmm. and I'm with you and holding space for someone is the attunement. So something that I um, heard from a friend that's going through, she's becoming a therapist right now. Mm-hmm. And kind of deconstructing what is trauma and what is love and how do we grapple with all these things is um, trauma is the absence of love. Mm. And so it's the absence, it's the neglect. And that's what this book talks about a lot is like neglect and emotional abuse is sometimes more complicated to recover from than... A physical, like, one-time car accident, right? It's like, I know what happened. Or even if I wasn't conscious because I was knocked out, I can point to, like, a very physical one-time this happened and now, even though it's taking me a while to, like, understand that my body is still living in in hyper-arousal from this car accident, I can now see that it's, like, going away. But, like, neglect happens for a long period of time. You can't point to one thing. And it's so hard to tease out in your brain because you're like, was that actually neglect or was that just normal? And it messes with us so much. But that's the absence of love, right? And if God, this like kind of goes into a spiritual side of things. And for me, coming from Judeo-Christian background, there's like, if God is love and sin is separation from God and trauma is the absence of love, then trauma is the absence of God and yeah. sin is the absence of love, right? Yeah. If we can follow that. Yeah, no, I've seen trail. <laughs> No, I've seen it all, yeah. But trauma is the absence of of love. Hmm. Hmm. And that's the ability to just, like, be grounded with someone Hmm. and be a kid with someone and, like, Hmm. play together and attune to each other and make music together, whether that's actual music, because that's always fun. But it's that, like, synchronicity and that musicality that is just a conversation in life. Hey, thanks for listening to another episode of You Too Can Book Review. That was my interview with Kirsten Musgrave as we explored The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. As always, today's theme music was provided by Brennan Knott, and all design and branding for the show was by the lovely Melissa Lee. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.